Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, friends. Happy Thursday. I hope your day is treating you well. Today, we are doing a subtype refresh, but first, today's rosebud and thorn. My rose today is that I am currently sitting at one of the most amazing places I have ever seen. I'm in a coffee shop whose walls are totally made of glass overlooking rice patties, drinking the most amazing coffee, and I just met one of you in Bali. It's such a wild, magical thing that the internet makes the world so much smaller to where we can run into kindred spirits all the way across the world. My thorn is that I leave Ubud and my amazing hotel in the morning, and I am honestly very sad to go. I am feeling resistant to moving on. But my bud is that I head to Changu tomorrow and I'm excited to see how it's different and what life will be like while I'm there and just kind of get a sense of a different kind of place in Bali. All right, so we're going to talk subtypes today. I wanted to go through this again because it's been a minute since we've talked about it and it's one of the most helpful things in the Enneagram in my opinion. And in yesterday's live Q&A, there were so many questions about mistyping and choosing between two different types. And in my opinion, subtypes are really a great way to do that. I think a lot of times we take a long time to type because maybe we're a counter type where our behavior doesn't always look like our motivation. They don't always match. And getting to that through subtypes can be very, very helpful. So let's talk first about what subtypes are. Each Enneagram type has three subtypes. Social types, which are concerned with belonging, recognition, relationships as they relate to social groups, having a group to support them, focusing on how much power they have within a group. They're aware of how their attitudes affect everyone else, and they want personal connections, staying in contact and reaching out to be involved with other people. And then we have the self-preservation subtypes. They're more concerned with having enough resources, avoiding danger, having security and safety. This can be material as well. Um, they can be focused on temperature, shopping, decorating, and other physical comfort needs. And these tend to be more grounded, practical, and serious. And then we have our one-to-one -one or our sexual subtypes. Now, all three subtypes desire intimate relationships, but just for different reasons. The one-to-one, -one, they're focused on intense drive for intimacy. They have a constant awareness of like the chemistry between them and another person. They quickly know if there's an attraction or a lack thereof. They're typically the most energized of the subtypes. They're more competitive, aggressive, charged, and emotionally intense when compared to the other two subtypes. They need deep relationships to be satisfied. Now, within these subtypes, we typically have one that is dominant. It's the instinct that represents the set of attitude and values that we are most attracted to and comfortable with. This is the instinct that is so powerful in us that we almost can't see it. It takes up a lot of the real estate and directs a lot of our actions. Basically, it's the water we swim in. 
And then we have our secondary, and this instinct is the least problematic for us. We're at least neurotic about it, we're not obsessed with it, and not blind to it either. It's the most naturally healthy and moves the most freely in us. It's a safe space for us. Basically, we can rest here. There's less of a charge, it provides relief from and supports our dominant instinct. And then we have our repressed or our blind spot. We're blind to its importance. We're least aware of its functioning in our lives. It's the least able to function freely in us, the least developed. It's buried or repressed, clumsy, maybe underused. It brings out deep shame and fears of deficiency. And we may even unconsciously try to keep it out of awareness. Now, within the world of the Enneagram, there are a lot of different schools of thoughts on subtypes. There's the school of thought that like our type kind of gets added on to our subtype. So, or it's kind of like a flavoring. So in this case, a seven who is a social seven would be a seven who's concerned with belonging and recognition. And in in some schools of thought, like the narrative tradition, we think of social types as being a little bit more cool and reserved, self-preservation types being a little bit more warm and inviting, and one-to-one or sexual types being a little bit more fiery, um, making really intense eye contact. That is one way to think about it. I tend to be of the mindset that's similar to Beatrice Chestnut, or I learned it from reading Beatrice Chestnut's work, who she learned it from Claudio Naranjo, and that's that there are actually 27 unique types, and each of these subtypes kind of blends with the type to create a unique type structure. Within this, we're able to see much more complexity through the lens of subtypes, and that I find extremely helpful. Now, as a reminder, within each of these types, one type for every Enneagram type is a counter type. So what I mean to say is each Enneagram type has all three subtypes, right? So you have one that is dominant, one that is secondary, and one is repressed. For every single Enneagram type, one of those subtypes is a counter type, meaning if that is your dominant subtype, you are going to look different in behavior than you do in motivation. And essentially there's a push-pull between your deepest desire as your type and how that represents. So for example, we'll look at type four here. Type fours, they struggle with envy, which can lead to suffering. And each of the subtypes of type four have a different relationship to suffering. So the self-preservation subtype wants to be seen as long-suffering. And this is the counter type. So maybe internally they want to be seen in their suffering, but they're also trying to prove how much suffering they can get through with without complaining, right? So there's a push-pull there. Now the other two subtypes, we have the sexual, they, they have suffered, therefore they want you to suffer. And then we have the social, which is like suffering is comforting and cozy. They want to be seen in their suffering. Their suffering is a warm, comfy blanket to them. So we're going to get into each of the nine types, starting with type eight. I'm going to try and do this quickly because I don't want to keep you here all day, but I do want to give you the information that you need. So we're going to talk, start with type eight. All of the subtypes of type eight have a relationship to lust. We're going to start with the social eight. We which has the title of solidarity. And this is the counter type. So again, this is the type that has that push-pull relationship with lust. This type expresses lust in service of other people through protection and loyalty. So they tend to be more loyal, friendly, and less aggressive than the other two subtypes. 
They have a social or antisocial push-pull going on. They're social in the sense that they are helpful eights who want to take care of others and may even be nurturing, but antisocial in the sense that they don't feel obligated to abide by social norms or rules of society. Now, this type is hyper aware of the exploitation of others and is the archetype that we're discussing when we talk about the energy of eights standing in the gap for people who are being taken advantage of or harmed in some way. They may look like a type nine or a type two and that they are concerned for others, friendly and service oriented. However, the difference is that these types are more direct, less scared of conflict and present with power and control when in service to others. And then we have our self-preservation eight. This is the most guarded of our type eights. They express lust through the need to collect everything they need for survival. They want to be satisfied in their material needs and have the little patience for waiting for their needs to be met. This type is quite quiet, but driven. They know what they want and they quietly and directly go after it. There's no need to discuss it. They're just going for it. They have a strong belief that they can meet any of their own needs and they can get what they need out of any situation. Now, this type can look a bit like a five because they are more quiet and guarded. However, there's a very real relationship to anger and desire that's not as prevalent in the five. They can also look specifically like the sexual one, although eights don't mind going against social norms while ones are hyper aware of what is considered appropriate. And then we have our final type eight, which is the sexual eight. And this is all about possession. This type tends to be the most provocative of the eights. They express lust through open rebellion, declaring values that differ from the norm. And fascinatingly enough, they're also the most emotional of the eights. This is the type eight that doesn't mind being seen as bad, quote unquote. They embrace the rebel stereotype and may even be outwardly disrespectful toward laws or regulations of any kind. One of my favorite sexual eights loves to own the title of Slytherin in their Harry Potter house. Like they want to embrace that role. It's almost like fun and, you know, provocative for them. They may seek intensity in relationships and in activities, and they can be thrill seekers or fight pickers. This is the type most likely to demand loyalty without necessarily giving it in return. They are unlikely to be mistyped, although if they are, it could be for a sexual four as they can be both angry, emotional, and demanding. However, four struggle with a sense of inner deficiency, while eights can struggle more with arrogance. All right, let's get into our type nine, starting with our social nine, which is also the counter type for nine. This type expresses all type nines have a relationship to sloth. Um, this type expresses laziness through over-sacrificing for the good of the group, merging with the group or overworking for the sake of the group. Are you noticing a theme here? They're community oriented. Social nines have a strong need to participate in the group and that's driven by an underlying belief that they are not part of a group and that they don't belong. So their over-sacrificing could come from their attempts to earn their sense of belonging. Now, this type can look like a type three because they are hard workers, but they differ in that they are much less interested in being in the spotlight. They could also be mistaken for twos because they are actively focused on meeting the needs of others, but they need much less approval and appreciation than twos and experience less high and low emotional states. They tend to be pretty even keeled emotionally as well. Then we have our self-preservation type nine, which the title for them is appetite. They seek comfort through meeting their physical needs. They seek physical comforts and comforting activities. 
They may substitute an awareness of their needs and desires for things that they enjoy doing, like eating, watching TV, working if that's comforting for them, or even reading or playing games. Now, this type is more concrete and present. They aren't necessarily drawn to abstracts, but more so in looking for things to do. Of all of the subtypes of nine, this is the one that needs the most alone time because it allows them to more fully relax into whatever activity they are engaging in. So this is the most active and intuitive of the nines and can often, because of this, look a little bit eight-ish. Now, when I hear it nine say, I think I must have a really big eight wing, I typically would explore this subtype with them. They can be more opinionated or more easily irritated than other nines, especially than the sexual nine. <laughs> the major difference between them and an eight, though, is that they are less action-oriented than a typical eight and are likely more accepting of how other people choose to live their lives. All right, then we move into the sexual nine. The title for them is fusion, and this is the most obvious type nine. They express laziness to self through merging with another person. They unconsciously use relationships to identify with because it's too overwhelming to do this on their own. This type can resemble a type four as they may experience some similar fears of abandonment or even melancholy. They orient so much around other people that they can be a bit hypersensitive to their moods or even take on their feelings. Now, fours are self-referencing, while nines are, are other-referencing and are more inclined to feeling the other person's emotions than really having a strong awareness of their own. They can also mistype as a two as they are so relationship-oriented However, twos are more concerned with how they are viewed and living up to the image they want to express. Twos also enjoy being the center of attention where sexual nines may avoid it. All right, then we move in to type one. The subtypes of the type one each have a relationship to anger. So our social one is titled non-adaptability. This subtype of one is focused on being an example of correct behavior for others to follow. So they may be less internally perfectionistic um, than some of the other subtypes and more focused on themselves as the standard of for what is appropriate. So while the self-preservation one hides their anger completely, the social one has their anger half exposed. Their main focus of attention is maintaining control. They lead with confidence and tend to believe that they are right or perfect. Social ones in relationship may see themselves as not in need of work. They may be self-sufficient to the point of rejecting their need for others and may be so focused on not being wrong that they may struggle to see another point of view. Then we have self-preservation type one, and this is the worrier. This type one has their anger most suppressed. They are often very warm, kind, and altruistic. They also tend to focus on preventing bad things from happening and constantly improving. They have a desire to feel in control and have everything planned out in advance. There's a chance that the childhood experience was someone who had a chaotic early childhood and learned how to create structure for themselves as they sought some sense of control in the midst of chaos. There can be a desire for ritual and routine that comforts this type one, a compulsion to show up the same way every day. This subtype of one can look like a type six in their tendency to prepare as well as a desire to be reliable and constant. Now the biggest difference here is that the six's primary focus of attention is on worry, while the type one's is on improving. Now this subtype of one is most likely to have the inner narrative, why am I the only one working so hard to improve things? Now we get into sexual ones, the zeal 
type one, and this is the counter type. So as a reminder, counter types are the ones who have a push-pull relationship with that fixation. So this subtype is the most overtly angry. They're less focused on being perfect themselves and more focused on refining the world around them. They may want to impose their morality onto those around them and see this as virtuous because there's a belief in their own moral superiority. Now this can bleed into partnership when the focus goes on to how to make the partner a perfect partner. This one doesn't question themselves as much. They may leave a partner because they aren't living up to their standards. It's much more about what others are doing than what they themselves are doing. Now this type one can look like an eight in behavior, but the motivation to be morally good is much more present than a desire to not be controlled. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Today's podcast is brought to you by Splendid Spoon. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know I did the summer of pleasure where I just let myself be fluid and free. I woke up when I woke up. I didn't do any of my routines. I just took my time and then school came back in session and my life went back to normal. It was kind of like an abrupt halt to the ease and I realized why I have all of these routines and structures because your girl is busy. And when things become busier, it can be harder to maintain the input of vegetables and fruits that I want in my life because I'm just trying to eat, right? I'm just trying to have time to even eat food. So I am so glad that Splendid Spoon came into my life at this time because I am now able to make my little breakfast as quick as possible and then take a green juice on my way to work. This has been a game changer for me and just getting enough greens and veggies into my day. Having their frozen meals to eat for lunch and then grabbing a juice to go with my breakfast in the morning has made it very easy to get the nutrients that I want into my body without added time or pressure. Now, Splendid Spoon takes the work out of eating healthy. You can choose from over 50 ready-to-eat meals shipped right to your door on repeat. So you can get things like breakfast smoothies, lunch bowls, or even noodle dinners and light soups. Easily customize your meal plan to fit your schedule and then relax. All of their meals are also 100% plant-based, gluten and GMO-free, with plenty of vegetables, legumes, healthy fats, whole grains, and spices which mean flavor, thank goodness, from around the world. So fuel up for busy days with Splendid Spoon. Get started today and get $120 off your first three boxes at splendidspoon.com slash egram. That's $120 off at splendidspoon.com slash egram. Okay, we have our type twos. They each have a relationship to seduction. 
Now we're gonna start with our self-preservation type two, which is the counter type. This type two seduces like a child would with adults, asking for their attention and their protection. So this type two, while helpful, is the least focused on the needs of others. Their attempt to earn love comes mostly from their desire to be seen as lovable just for who they are. They may reach for love similarly to how a child seeks affection from adults. They may present as cute, as someone who needs to be taken care of. They have almost a childlike desire to be placed as the priority so that their needs become front and center. This type two has a push-pull dynamic with other people. They wanna be close, but they also move away from relationships. These type twos want to be seen as independent and want to see themselves as independent, yet they continue to find themselves in dependent roles. They can look like a self-preservation six in that they are fearful and a bit ambivalent about relationships, but the two is primarily fearful of relationships, while the six may spread that energy much more broadly. They can also look like a type four. However, they repress their needs and feelings and focus on others more than type fours do. All right, and then that takes us to our social two, which is the title ambition. The subtype of two is a seducer of groups. They make great leaders and focus on networking and being an influential person. This two focuses on influencing the larger crowd by being impressive, exceptional, and knowledgeable. They may seek positions of power, and be close to people in power. They can be blind to the reality that everyone might not have that same motivation, but then put their attention on helping others to anyway. This type two is the most strategic as they know how to engage in organizations and environments to make things work in their favor. They may be a great performer, but need a lot of walls up outside of their professional space. They are likely more introverted than the other type twos. Now this type two can resemble a three or an eight. They are driven and powerful and focused on success like a three or eight would be. However, they are more likely to be emotional, vulnerable, and soft than a typical three or eight. And then we have our sexual two, the seductive one. <laughs> this type two is focused on the classic style of seduction, the desire to be attractive to a particular person. And this is more of an adult two who is generous, warm, and often not afraid of being sexual. This type two knows that they, that they are okay when they are someone's passionate attachment. This type two knows that they are okay when they have someone's passionate attachment. They're charming and focused on earning allegiance from individuals. They get their needs met without asking by ensuring a bond with someone who will meet those needs. Now this type two operates with the belief that others will want to meet their needs because they are so charming, appealing, and generous. They romanticize the idea of love and what it can offer them, and they may see themselves as the ideal lover and have a blindness to their own selfishness. This too seeks a connection where they can exchange their devotion and generosity for whatever it is they may want. Chestnut refers to it as the blank check, like I give to you and then I can ask for whatever I want in return. Now this type two puts a significant amount of energy into making relationships happen and may have a hard time letting go of those relationships end. All right, let's get into type three and they have the relationship to vanity. Starting with our self-preservation type three. They are the counter type and their title is security. So this type three experiences a conflict with vanity. They may avoid talking about their success because they view it as bad or uncouth. They focus more on their own security and autonomy. There's a deep drive to make their own way and to provide for themselves. They put attention into being the best at everything they do. They long to be admired and inspiring, but don't want to acknowledge that they want the recognition. 
There's a push-pull with validation, a hiding of their achievements, while also a secret wish for someone to notice them. I heard a self-preservation three once say that they were the kid in the back of the dance room who wanted to do the dance, wanted to be in the back, but also secretly wished to be called out and used an example for who was doing a great job. They can look like a one because they focus on being good, responsible, and self-sufficient. However, the major difference is they want to be good by societal standards and not their own inner authority. They can look like sixes, however, they are more image-focused and they don't tend to let their productivity get halted by questioning or doubt. Then we have our social three, which is the prestige. This subtype of three has a desire to shine and be recognized. This is the type most comfortable with being seen for their achievements, most performative, and most able to adapt to their surroundings. They may struggle to fully reveal themselves to others and can struggle to really know themselves outside of how they want to be seen by other people. They struggle the most with the fear of being found out as worthless. Not likely to mistype these ones, thus they're the most obvious type three. They're pretty straightforward. And then we have our sexual three. The title here is charisma. Now this is the least work focused three. They're more concerned with beauty and sex appeal than with their next great accomplishment. They seek to please others and be desirable, often in a traditional sense, like more so like what is expected of like masculine and feminine in our society and playing that role. These type threes excel in relationships. They tend to work hard on behalf of someone else. They may even marry a very powerful person and honor the role of being their support. Now this type can look like a two because they seek to connect with others through being pleasing and attractive, However, they focus more on a specific image of physical attractiveness and less on shape-shifting and meeting emotional needs. They can also look like a seven. They tend to be positive and enthusiastic in their support of others, and they can be excellent cheerleaders. Sevens are fundamentally self-referencing, though, meaning they prioritize their happiness and their needs, while threes reference others for what they should be. Sevens typically know what they want and need, while threes are more disconnected from themselves which takes us into type four. Now, like we talked about earlier, each of these types have a relationship to envy or suffering, or suffering through the path of envy. <laughs> We're gonna start with our self-preservation type four, which is our counter type. Now, this type four experiences a conflict with envy. While they experience envy like every other four, instead of comparing and feeling their suffering, they're more inclined to do what they need to do to get the things that they feel like they're missing or that others have which they want. So there's a deep drive to endure suffering without complaint or even showing their hand. Now, there's also that push-pull with suffering, a hiding of their suffering while also a secret wish for someone to notice how well they are hiding their suffering. Now, this type can look like a one or a three, although they have more up and down emotions than a typical one, even if they go unexpressed and they tend to sabotage their goals, unlike the typical three who tends to achieve what they strive for. They can look like sevens. They're often called the sunshiny four. Although they have more access to their full range of emotions than a typical seven and are action repressed while the seven is going to be quick to take action. And then we have our social four, which the title for them is shame. This subtype of four has a desire to be seen in their suffering. This is the type most comfortable with being seen as suffering and a hope there that if their suffering is understood, then their deficiencies or failures will be more easily forgiven. This type four seeks sympathy through suffering from other people and may use their suffering as a way to feel unique, while all the while fueling their envy of what others have, have 
thus enhancing their suffering. This type four may hold on to the idea that they're suffering because it may bring about their redemption, or there's a belief that it will bring about their redemption. It's not that they are competing with others as much as they compare themselves to others and then find themselves lacking. They may feel guilty for having needs and preferences and use suffering as a way to get those needs met. This type may be more inclined to see themselves as victims and struggle to take responsibility for their own actions or aggressiveness. They're the least likely to mistype, however, they can look like sixes in their focus on what's missing or wrong in their lives. All right, then that takes us to the sexual four, which title is competition. They may not feel consciously envious as much as they focus on beating their competition. This type is less focused on being liked and more focused on being the best. Sexual fours make others suffer because they feel as if they have been made to suffer, and so they need some sort of compensation. This type has an extreme demand that their needs be validated and met, and they rebel against any shame connected to their desires. This type is most likely to be confused with type eights or sexual twos. They differ from eights in the wider emotions they regularly feel and express. Naranjo points out that eights don't often need to get angry, whereas this four frequently feels misunderstood or envious, so they may actually express their anger more often. They differ from the six sexual two because they are less oriented toward pleasing others. All right, let's get into type five. They each have a relationship to avarice. So we have our self-preservation type five, which title is Castle. This is the truest essence of a type five, like the fiveiest five. <laughs> this type five expresses avarice through privacy. The title Castle implies that they hide behind tall walls that keep them hidden or over a private sanctuary. And this protects them from the feeling of being intruded upon by others and the world at large. Now, self-preservation fives have the strongest boundaries of any other type in the Enneagram, and to this type, the external world can feel brutal, hostile, or intrusive. They may connect deeply with a few trusted people, but they will very seldom show their anger. And this can mean that on a surface level, people may feel like they're connecting, but the type five is simply studying or placating them, not necessarily truly forming a relationship. All right, we have the social five, which is the totem. This subtype of five for this subtype of five, avarice is connected to knowledge. They use knowledge to compensate for the nourishment that relationships would provide. And the title totem is there to represent the need to relate to people who share their intellectual values. These types desire to be someone important as well as someone who lives up to their ideals without showing emotion. They can look like a seven because they can be fairly outgoing and show excitement about ideas and people, but they differ as they are more reserved and less emotional than sevens often are. And then we have our sexual five, which is our counter type. The avarice in the sexual five is defined by Chestnut as being most expressed through an ongoing search for a connection that will satisfy their need for an experience of the most perfect, safest, and satisfying union. This subtype has a passion for finding their soulmate, one person to live up to their high ideal of what love is and can be. This type five is much more emotionally expressive than the other two subtypes and can often resemble a type four. This five is drawn to a utopian fantasy and ideal romantic partnerships. They create a mystical idea of love that may not exist in real life. All right, and then we get to our type six, which each have a relationship to anxiety. We start with our self-preservation type six, whose title is warmth. And this type, fear shows up as insecurity. 
This is the subtype that feels fear the most. They may seek a strong network of friends or connections to keep them safe. They seek to be a good friend and seek out strong friendships as a way to survive. They tend to not trust themselves and therefore they may feel alone or incapable without support. Now this is the warmest and friendliest of the type six subtypes. They fear disappointing others, especially those closest to them. And being at war is their way of getting people to be friendly so they won't be attacked. And being warm is their way of getting people to be friendly so that they will not be attacked. Now there's a contradiction in this six. Outwardly, they are warm, friendly, and peaceful, while internally they struggle with fear, guilt, anguish, and torment. They feel heart-centered on the outside, but are head-centered internally. So because of this, they can look like a type two. However, their main focus is on security, not on gaining approval and support of pride. Then we have our social six, whose title is duty. This type focuses on finding a specific ideology that they can hold on to. They focus on finding their role and living it out, and they want to know what is theirs to do and focus on doing it. Now to find this, they consult the guidelines laid out by whatever authority they adhere to. So this is the type most focused on authority. They fear letting their authority figures down and being a disappointment, so they seek out clear rules and expectations to live by. Now this subtype can look like a type one. However, ones are guided by a strong sense of inner standards, and this type six is focused on following the plans laid out by an external authority. They may also resemble threes because they love precision and efficiency. However, the main motivation of the six here is avoiding anxiety by finding a sense of authority and reference points, not to accomplish goals and look good through efficiency. All right, and our final type six here is our sexual six, which is our counter type. They're commonly called the counterphobic six, and this type is the most counterphobic of the three sixes. They turn against fear by taking on a stance of strength and intimidation. They believe that when you are afraid, the best defense is a good offense. They strive to not be weak and don't allow weakness in themselves. This type walks around aware that anyone could become dangerous, so they take a defensive stance to make sure they're never taken advantage of. Now, this type may find themselves in a contrarian stance. If everyone in the room is happy, they'll be sad. If everyone is sad, they'll be happy. They are also likely to play devil's advocate. The sexual six can look like a type eight. However, this six is still motivated by fear, even if they aren't consciously aware of it or show it. While the eight tends to be truly unafraid. Eights tend to create order, while sexual sixes like to disrupt things and kind of stir the pot. They may also look like threes because they're assertive and quick to take action. However, they have more paranoid fantasies than the three and are still driven by fear above success. And our final type today is our type seven. Thanks for waiting, our sevens. And each of them have a relationship to gluttony. So we have our self-preservation type seven, which is the keeper of the castle. In this type, gluttony is in the form of networking. They form alliances or a friend group that is more like a family. This type is the most practical of the sevens. They're opportunistic and good networkers. Like they're the people who have like a guy for everything. And this type is focused on getting what they need and want and are constantly looking for opportunities and pathways to do that. This type seven tends to be warm and talkative. They wanna consume as many pleasurable experiences as possible. They spend a lot of energy on attempts at controlling everything, and they do tend to get what they want as well. They may confuse what want with need, thinking that they need all of it to survive. When things get tight, they may panic and feel like they're living with too little. 
Now, when the sexual subtype is in their stacking, they can look like a six. However, these types are tend to be relentlessly positive. When the social is the second, they can look like an eight, driven by survival, fear, or anxiety, even if they're not fully aware of it. I also believe they can mistype as a three. However, sevens are always going to prioritize feeling good over looking good. And then we have our social seven, which is our counter type. They focus on a kind of anti-gluttony. There's a push-pull with what they want and a fear of being too selfish. They put aside their desires in pursuit of an ideal. So they strive for purity. They value getting by on less. They crave acknowledgement for their sacrifice. They may feel guilt for getting what they want because they see it as taboo to be self-interested. They tend to be altruistic, idealistic, and dedicated, and they can look like a two because of this. However, they are definitely self-referencing, whereas twos are others referencing. And then they can look like a one. However, they want to be acknowledged for the good they do, as well as they can more easily reframe what is good or bad. Then we have our sexual seven, which is the suggestibility. To me, this is the most obvious seven. I'm gonna read you a direct quote from Beatrice Chestnut in her book, The Complete Enneagram. These sevens tend to look at things with the optimism of somebody who is in love. Everything looks better when you are in love. The sexual seven takes refuge in this kind of ideal, positive experience as a way of unconsciously avoiding what might be unpleasant in life. They focus on a highly positive view of life to distract themselves from the uncomfortable or scary emotions they would rather remain unaware of. This is the type seven that can be a little bit too happy as they're covering up their pain with joy. The internal narrative is, it's okay, I'm okay, it's okay, I'm okay. They may be naive or gullible, trusting that people are what they say they are. And they wanna make sure that they aren't missing out or losing anything. This type may struggle most with follow through or getting their ideas into action. They're dreamers first and doers second. Dreaming feels better than doing, so they may just stop at the dreaming. And this is the one that's kind of the most obvious seven, so they're pretty unlikely to mistype. All right, friends, I know that was a quick little rundown of all the types. Thank you so much for joining me today, though. Let me know on Instagram at Sarah Jane Case if you have anything else you'd like for me to revisit that we have covered in the past. We can do a little let's check back in on this. And as always, it's an absolute joy to create this content for you. And I'll see you tomorrow for the next episode. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.